Hello everyone and welcome to A Cast of Kings, an unofficial podcast about the HBO original series Game of Thrones. My name is David Chen and I've never read any of the books in George R.R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. My name is Joanna Robinson and I've read every book in George R.R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. You can find every one of our episodes at GameOfThronesPodcast.com. Email us, let us know what you think of the podcast and of the show at acastofkings at gmail.com. So Joanna, uh... You know, sometimes in the course of recording podcasts, sometimes in the fog of war, mistakes can be made. Uh, it happens. It happens. We're human beings. We're not perfect. Are, are we? Are we not gods? And, uh, well, apparently people expect us to be, because anytime any of us makes a single mistake about Game of Thrones, uh, we get bombarded with emails and, and hateful tweets and horrible reviews on iTunes. Horrible, hurtful, dagger-like reviews on iTunes. <laughs> And uh, that was no different last week when after our review of Season 2, Episode 8 of Game of Thrones, uh, people pointed out two errors that we made in that episode that were very significant. Number one, uh, we failed to identify the origin of Roz's necklace from that episode, um, which came from Tyrion in Season 1 of Game of Thrones, uh, in which she discusses uh, Tyrion giving her the necklace. And so that's where Cersei kind of how Cersei was misled in last week's episode. So kudos to all the people for pointing that out. But I think the far graver crime that we committed last week, and by we, I mean you, Joanna, was... Uh, 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 uh. <laughs> you were an accomplice in that crime. Though it was, I agree, a heinous, was, was heinous qu- error. Was quote-unquote observing that Game of Thrones had copious female nudity, but no male frontal nudity. And how quickly we forget, Joanna Robinson. How quickly we forget. Um, lest any of you out there are comp- currently composing emails to me about the male frontal nudity in Game of Thrones, let me assure you, I've done a final count. I officially have received 74 emails about penises. That does not count the tweets and the comments over on SlashFilm.com about the penises. I have received images of screen caps of all the penises that we've seen thus far in Game of Thrones. So duly noted, gentle <laughs> readers. But uh, one thing I do want to say, and, you know, I was wrong. Well, hold, on, hold on. Let's say where, where the penises were, Joanna, first of all. Oh, okay. Okay. We've got, number one, we've got Hodor's magnificent member <laughs> as he sort of tumbles out of the woods um, at one point, and uh, Osha, in fact, comments that he must have giant's blood in him uh, because his penis is so memorable. So that we forgot that is just pretty, pretty inexcusable. I, I didn't um, even remember at all. Like, I'm pretty sure I repressed that memory, but continue. Um, Theon. <laughs> Uh, we get to see Theon naked with Roz. Uh, in fact, I believe in that scene where they're discussing uh, the lion <laughs> necklace. So we repressed everything about that. I, I think it was just that much. one scene that we forgot that sort of caused a chain reaction yeah. in terms of uh, what we the errors we made last week. And then finally, the really, really sexy male frontal nudity of uh, Danny's poisoner being dragged <laughs> naked behind a horse. Um, that was some sexy male frontal nudity that we forgot. So those are the three instances, uh, according to the 74 emails I received, those are the three instances of nudity, so male frontal nudity in the series so far. I think it's safe to say that it's still slightly disproportionate, disproportionate <laughs> to the female nudity and that it's not 
in quite such a sexy context. I'm sure Theon was was trying his damnedest to be to be very attractive, but Hodor and the po- and the poisoner. Um, I'm not going to give them sexy points at all. So. I mean, well, when I see a naked man getting dragged behind a convoy of Dothraki, that's really that's really what gets my crank turning. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> Good to uh, know. But yes, okay. Despite the fact that yes, male nudity did happen in Game of Thrones, there can still be a point made about sort of how women are objectified on the show, certainly compared to the men being objectified on the show. Which is to say, they're not objectified that much. At least not nearly as much. I mean, we had some nice f- female nudity f- thrown in completely gratuitously this week, I believe. Super uh, gratuitous. It's, it's like, why is that? It's, it's not even a context in which you'd normally find that type of female nudity. But in any case, I'm getting ahead of myself. Jonah Robinson, this week, Season 2, Episode 9 of Game of Thrones. And for those of you who are just tuning in for the first time for some reason... Uh, we discuss everything through this week's episode, meaning we'll spoil everything through season two, episode nine, Blackwater. Right? Is that what the episode's called, Blackwater? Blackwater. And um, and we will not spoil anything from future episodes. That includes anything found in future books of Game of Thrones, as well as uh, anything from uh, what do you call it? The next time on previews for Game of Thrones that you see on HBO. So let's get the show on the road, John Robinson. Overall. Your thoughts on this episode of Game of Thrones? Personally, I'm feeling rather vindicated because I was assuring folks all season that something really awesome was coming and it came and it was awesome. And I hope everyone feels like it was worth the wait. This episode was amazing. I agree completely. I think this is uh, a a really masterful hour of television. And and, uh, Miles McNutt referred to it as event television I completely agree in the sense that I think this is an episode of TV that you could show to anyone, whether or not they've seen a single episode of Game of Thrones, and it would still be quality television. Obviously, you get a lot more out of it if you know the relationships and all the background and stuff, but I think it's still solid. There's enough great dialogue and and action that you can still be really thrilled by this episode, whether or not you know anything about this show or this series. So, uh, well done. Uh, this is an episode written by George R.R. R. Martin, of course, the creator of the book series Game of Thrones. It's also directed by Neil Marshall, uh, who has directed films in the past such as Centurion, and one of my favorite horror films, The Descent. Uh, and I think uh, the pedigree certainly shows up here uh, in terms of the battle scenes and just overall the dialogue is great, especially Cersei. She gets a ton of great moments in this episode. Uh, so I really love the hell out of this episode. All that being said, Joanna, I do have some reservations, not necessarily about this episode, but maybe about the show in general. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But uh, let's, let's talk about some of our, our the most memorable sort of scenes in, in this episode. Um, we begin with Davos chatting with his son about what's to come. And uh, shortly after that, uh, his, his son is is brutally evaporated by wildfire. Uh, and it's interesting because, you know, his, they kind of have different religions, right? Like uh, his son is monotheistic, I believe. Right. And, right. and Davos is, uh, is polytheistic. He's, he's yeah. old school polytheism, right? And so uh, I, I think the sort of son's naivete, for lack of a better word, uh, is meant to mirror some of uh, religious sentiments that we might see in modern day society. Uh, I don't know what you made of this scene and of, of Davos's son getting totally uh, vaporized after he had so much faith in his god uh, before the battle began. 
Well, it's great because that is mirrored also in the uh, in the Sansa um, and Cersei conversations as well. Right. I loved how much they brought in the religious conversation, which is a huge part of of this story because you have these multiple faiths um, clashing as well. You know, it's not just who is best to sit on the Iron Throne, but you also have these faiths. It's not just a clash of kings, as it were. It is a clash (laughs) of faiths as well. Of gods, of deities. So. yeah, and and Davos is a character that I I like so much in the books, and um, the Battle of the Black Water in the books is told almost entirely. Well, no, half from his perspective, and so I did like that they you know they gave him plenty of time in this episode, and um, you know the actor um, Liam Cunningham, I believe. I could be wrong. Could be entirely wrong. Anyway, uh, that sounds mag- about right. He's a magnificent actor, and um, you know, I, I just I really liked that sort of world weary warrior. Like, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's not get cocky. I've I've done this before. I know what I'm doing. Sort of attitude, and I lo- I just loved that whole sequence on the on the water there. Yeah, it was pretty great. It was pretty great. And then uh, you know we have a Tyr- we have Tyrion and Shay interacting. Uh, Cersei and Meister, Meister Pycelle have this interaction where Meister Pycelle gives her what's, uh, I guess we could call it a kind of poison, right? It's like almost like cyanide, although it, it, used in small enough doses, it can just help you go to sleep. Uh, and for me as a viewer, it was like, I, I'm not sure what she's doing with this. Uh, obviously, uh, I, I had guessed that she would be potentially using it to kill herself in the event that the palace was seized, but. Uh, it wasn't a hundred percent clear, and, and especially like the emphasis on like her uh, pouring uh, or her having her handmaiden or whatever pour wine for Sansa. I didn't know if like she was going to slip her or something. Didn't, oh. didn't really make any sense to me that that would happen. And of course, by the end of the episode, it's explained that she was going to poison herself and her son, uh, or maybe just her son, in the event that something happened. I um, think they referred to it as nightshade. Um, I think is what they called it. And uh, yeah, I didn't even think about. Sansa's wine, that to me seemed just more like a power play, like, you know, keep drinking because I said so. so it was just it was just so much emphasis was placed on the wine this episode. <laughs> I was like, are they trying to head fake us? I didn't know. What uh, else are you going to do in a battle, Dave, but drink your troubles away? I guess. Me. Yeah, clearly, clearly. So then Braun and the Hound have this interaction like before uh, the battle is about to begin and it wasn't uh, like I could guess why they might have some tension between them, but it wasn't a hundred percent clear why they were about to kill each other right there and then. Uh, is it just that they were kind of like you know you know because uh, uh, Braun is obviously kind of an outsider that Tyrion brought in, and so I, I'm assuming that's the source of the tension between them. Uh, can you do you provide? I, well, yeah. I think that it's more even though ostensibly the Joffrey's army is all one army, you know, there are the two sides. There are those who are faithful to Tyrion and there are those who are faithful to Joffrey. And for whatever reason, the Hound is faithful to Joffrey and Bronn is faithful to Tyrion. And as much as Tyrion has been like after Joffrey this entire season, humiliate him in public and that sort of stuff, you know, I think it makes sense that their men would be, um, would come to blows, come to murder. I don't know, but come to blows certainly. Well, I mean, dude was freaking grabbing for his knife, you know. Yeah, so. no, no, I agree with you. I, you know, I, I thought there was going to be bloodshed. It's like, sure. yeah, I mean, I was just like, dude, don't you guys have like more important things to worry about right now? <laughs> like, 
you know, like save the pissing contest for later is what I wanted to say. But whatever. Well, that, just, that just shows, you know, how fragile that whole army was. You know, they were not a united front at all. So because uh, they lacked a strong leader up you, until that point. You mean Joffrey was not a uniter as uh, as everyone had hoped? It's, I mean, it's he's pretty inspiring. So uh, yeah, yeah, I yeah. don't know. Well, speaking of inspiring, I mean, later on, some people were commenting last night that this is the episode that's going to win Peter Dinklage another Emmy. I don't know what you thought of that, but later on in the episode, he has to seize control of the army and give a big speech, which I think is the first time I've seen, uh, you know, someone who's not that tall give a speech that's supposed to inspire hundreds of people, and he does a pretty freaking damn good job about it. Uh, I don't know what you thought of that. Did that convince you that he was able to motivate all these men? It did. I loved it. Um, it was interesting. We saw a couple sort of quote unquote inspirational speeches throughout the episode and all of them were pretty shabby until you got to Tyrion because, you know, Stannis, you know, just tells his army, you know, come with me and take the city. That's the extent of Stannis's inspirational speech for his men. And, you know, and then the hound says, any man dies with a clean sword, I'll rape his fucking corpse. So that's inspirational in its own way, but yeah, not yeah. quite Certainly. the epic rousing thing. And then Cersei, you know, hints that the women, you know, who are under her protection are in for a bit of a rape, which uh, <laughs> is also charming. You know, so the only person who's really taking up the mantle of leadership in a really noble and traditional and heroic way is Tyrion is this half man, you know? So how, yeah, I agree with you. How wonderful is that? It was, it was great. So, so speaking of Tyrion's leadership, I mean, we also get this trope of war movies where it's like, hold the line, hold the line. And you have no idea what's going to happen. Uh, but you know, something totally badass is going to happen at the last second. And I think this totally delivers. He lets off what's like the Westeros version of like a nuclear explosion <laughs> in, in the sea. Now, I, I don't know how convinced I like, it, it, first of all, it was a wonder to watch. And I was like, I was, I was, when I watched it, I was like, this is so badass. I'm so happy I'm watching this right now. At the same time, it's like this one boat, uh, had apparently dumped enough wildfire to completely destroy all the ships. I just don't know if that was, uh, you know, if, if well, that was the boat depicted. itself was crammed full of wildfire. I, I see, I see, I see. I so see. it was like a powder keg itself. And then the, the I don't know if they explained it in the episode where they introduced wildfire, but it can burn. I mean, you could see it can burn on the water. Right. So, right. you know, it's not like the water was putting it out at all. Um, well, I love how they have this unique, this uh, mythic, like, fictional substance and they can just give it whatever physical characteristics they want so if they wanted to explode and kill 5,000 people it can and that's exactly what happened uh so i mean such a thrill to watch that i mean i felt bad that thousands of men were dying but i mean you kind of think that they're a-holes because they're so confident that they're gonna win beforehand so i'm like okay you guys got what's coming to you you know and anyone who follows an a-hole like stannis you know must be an a-hole themselves right clearly clearly except for davos but yeah stannis is like has like no not, not only not only has no remorse for the death of his thousands of men uh he seems to revel in it he's like you know they're like Sir, like, are we still going to go in without our ships? Hundreds of men will die. And he's like, thousands. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. he's like not, not sad about it at all. He's just like, this is what needs to be done so that I can be king, even though no one wants me to be king. Uh, well, I think Stannis has been a really tricky character for them this season. Um, he, like I have said before, he doesn't have a point of any point of view chapters in the book. And so, uh, 
you know, you just don't really get a sense of the man at all, I think. Yeah, you know? I, I, and, I agree. I mean, I, he's a tricky character anyway because he's so dour and nobody likes him, you know, and so you just you don't really fully understand what makes him tick other than that scene we had where he was talking about, you know, what was owed to him, you know, and and that sort of stuff when he was talking to Davos. But following him along the battle, along the ramparts, everything, I was just, you know, I was just thinking like what – what is, you know, until he was heartbroken that his troops were dispersing, I didn't really feel anything from him yeah. up until then. So, yeah, I mean, he seems like there's nothing that motivates him except for ambition and disdain, really. I mean, that's kind of the impression I get from Stannis. Yeah, but nothing that makes him like really human. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. So. Uh, so anyway, uh, a pretty incredible scene to watch. And I I love how Joffrey, even, even at war is a really annoying bastard. He's just like, what's going on? Tell me what's happening now. It's like, dude, just, just, he's got this. Okay. He's got this. (laughs) I got this. Yeah. Right. I've been planning this. Um, I'm just going to, I, you know, I'm just going to mention this really quickly. I I loved the battle. It was fantastic. Readers of the book are probably going to be a little disappointed that there wasn't this chain, which was another part of the plan that Tyrion, you know, spends like basically the entire book making this chain. He has the entire town make this chain that when it's pulled up will block all the boats in the bay, like so they can't get back out and are forced to burn. And um, he has this great heroic moment in the book where he has to go down and pull the chain up himself because no, you know, no one else is going to do it. And they just left the chain out because it's not very filmic, I guess. But um, it's just sort of one of these iconic parts of the the battle that was left out that I think book readers might be disappointed by. But anyone else, you know, of course, didn't miss it at all. Well, we should say that uh, what they were able to achieve in this episode is, I mean – Nothing short of amazing. Just that they, they were able to make this work on a TV budget uh, is astonishing. I mean, the, the fact that it came out – like, if you extended this for another 20 minutes, you know, it could be a decent war film, I would argue. Yeah. And uh, the fact that they were able to do it for what? I'm sure I'm, – like, the, whole, the budget for the whole series this season was, like, $65 million or something. I'm sure they didn't spend more than $20 million on a single episode. Uh, so the fact that they were able to do that for, you know, such little money is just so resourceful, so incredible, well done to the creators of, uh, and showrunners of Game of Thrones. I mean, uh, they really maximized their resources here and, uh, it's, it's an achievement that should be referred to and should be revered, uh, for a while to come. So, so this week we also got some nice interaction between Cersei and Sansa. And I really loved these scenes down in the sort of dungeon area where Sansa is kind of just like, she's stripping away all of the artifice that's between their relationship, just kind of telling it like it is. And she's upping the levels of horror as the episode goes on. It's like, yeah, you know, horrible things could happen. You could get raped. And oh, by the way, we're not going to get raped because this guy is going to kill us all before that could happen. Right. So it's just every single scene, it like ups the ante a little bit. What do you make of these scenes between Sansa and Cersei, Joanna? 
I thought they were great. Uh, you know, so one of my concerns for this episode is, you know, we still have one more episode of the season. There are still things that they need to get to. And I was really afraid that they were going to cut from the Battle of Blackwater to other stories, to Danny or to John or something like that. And I was like, that's just going to be so disorienting because in the book, it's a simple cut back and forth between the battle and Cersei and Sansa and the battle and Cersei and Sansa. And that's exactly, you know, George R. R. Martin wrote this episode. He just did it exactly like he did it in the book. And it works so well, that balance of what the women experience in war versus what the men experience in war. And you get Cersei talking about how she and Jamie were so alike growing up and she just didn't understand why she couldn't fight. And he, you know, that she had her role that she had to play. And um, she's like a grown up Arya almost. Yeah. You know, like, and I think even in the book, they talk about how they used to switch places because they were twins. You can't really pull it off on this, in this TV series because they don't look enough like the actors, but they were twins and they used to switch place so she could go learn how to fight a little bit. You know what I mean? So you find these things out about Cersei that's, um, that, you know, maybe makes you have a a little more sympathy for her character. And then as a, as a mother in this episode, you know, I just think those that side of her is really compelling and interesting. So, yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so, some really fantastic work there. And we should also say, I am ninety nine percent sure, uh, uh, although I'm not a hundred percent sure that this is the first episode of Game of Thrones that takes place almost completely in one confined area. Right? right, like it's like in one place, basically one location. Now it combines two different plot lines, and arguably three different plot lines, uh, with the with the introduction of Tywin at the end. But uh, it, it it's in one location, so it's very different from previous episodes. And you know what? Kind of refreshing, Joanna. Kind of yeah. nice to see like one plot line play out without jumping all over the place and getting only a taste of each individual plot line. Um, go ahead. Yeah, I completely agree. Um. I think one of the complaints you and I both have had is that, you know, of the of the books and of the TV show is as the characters split off, split off, split off and get further and further spread out, it's hard to track everything that's happening. And and you can't really get fully invested in something if you're like, oh, now we're, you know, across the narrow sea or something like that. So, yeah, I agree that that's part of what made this episode so compelling. One of the questions I have with this episode is kind of the evolution of the Hound character. Yeah. The Hound character has been kind of putting up with Joffrey's crap the the whole time. He se- seems like he has a soft spot for Sansa, even though he does acknowledge and seems to revel in the fact that he is kind of a psychopath. Like, he, he does enjoy killing, right? Right. Uh, and so... I got to admit, it was a little bit surprising to see the Hound kind of just defect this episode and say, F it, like F the king. Um, I I, I think that like it's it's not totally out of the realm of understanding for me why he did that, but I wish that more had been done in this episode to build up to that moment, if that makes any sense. I think what they were trying to show, uh, which maybe comes across, across clearer in the book, is his really deep crawling fear of fire you know because he's disfigured because his brother burnt him that's like the hound's major weakness he is a fearsome warrior but fire just scares the shit out of him and there was fire everywhere and he was just like fuck this i can't i can't handle this you know i think that it more than you know realization of joffrey being a terrible king is what pushed him to you know 
walk right on out of there you know well i will say uh maybe it's because i'm an idiot but i did not get that at all so okay uh, i think i mean there was a scene like you know he's like any of those flaming arrows come near me i'll strangle you with your entrails or something like that to one of the archers right and there's right. a scene where a torch sort of comes near his face really early in the in the battle and he sort of shies back right and then when he's out there on the field there's like a burning guy running towards him and he was just yeah, and like it goes fuck like, and it, no i'm yeah. out <laughs> and it goes it goes into the you know the war movie slow motion where this guy is witnessing the horrors of war right uh and so it, you know it's not like it was not like oh totally out of nowhere um but yeah I, I guess now that you explain it it does make a little bit more sense uh i i guess we're just used to seeing the hound as such a badass 99 percent of the time that right. it does seem to come out of nowhere that he would be afraid of anything or that or even that he would not put up with what's going on which is what's been asked of him for this entire series so uh but you know it was interesting that out of all the places he chose to retreat to Sansa's room was the place that he chose to to go uh, to escape from people, and offers Sansa um, the sort of uh, proposal to escape with her. Uh, and you know, what what did you think of that that scene? Um, I thought it was really interesting. I don't know that I uh, I was I guess I was so focused on the the killing motif that he was talking about that I missed the part where he said "run away with me," but. Um, the the Sansa hound shippers will be certainly happy by that scene. I think that was a little fan service that they did there. Um, I thought that was just very, I mean, he's just so constantly, relentlessly, brutally in her face about violence, about talking about her father and talking about her sons and how everyone is a killer. And, you know, Sansa, who has been so innocent for so long, yet, you know, when it when she's called upon to be very brave this episode, you know, she's the one who gives solace to all the women. Cersei wusses out and runs away. And Sansa, even though she's lying, you know, she's the one who acts the most regal in this situation. And, um, you know, so we've seen her, the evolution of her character, which has just been so interesting. And, and yeah, the contrast of her and her little bird and her little doveness, you know, with this great brutal man, is, it was just a very interesting confrontation. Do you want to go home? I'll be safe here. Stannis won't hurt me. <laughs> Look at me. Stannis is a killer. The Lannisters are killers. Your father was a killer. Your brother is a killer. Your sons will be killers someday. The world is built by killers. So you better get used to looking at them. Well, I really was touched by the scene where she goes over and she reaches for this doll that her father Ned gave her. Uh, and she kind of holds on to it, and it's you know, uh, it's just you, you think of what this woman has been through, right? Uh, you know, like that she started off, you know, the series of Game of Thrones, like you know, not 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 thrilled to be in Winterfell, but not living a bad life at all, you know, and then seeing her family members killed and her family scattered, and now the entire kingdom is at war, and she might be about to be you know brutally raped and killed. And she's holding on to this kind of signal symbol of her of her past and and of her childlike innocence, childhood innocence. Uh, very very touching to see, like the emotion in her face when she held that doll. 
And that last shot was so interesting because it's a very traditional, you know, down by her hip, her hand coming into frame shot where usually you see a weapon in that hand, like a sword or something like that. And she had this doll. Yeah, yeah. You know, that was... She's bracing herself. She's arming herself for what's to come. And all she has to hold on to is this doll, you know. So yeah. I agree. Really well done. Really yeah. well done there. Um, so what else? Uh, this uh, – so there's also this – interesting dynamic between Tyrion and Joffrey this episode where uh jo- you know Joffrey needs to stay out there right like he needs to stay there to motivate the men otherwise it's like the men will lose morale uh and all this season Cersei has been accusing Tyrion of trying to get Joffrey killed by having him fight in battle right and Tyrion is like really disappointed when Joffrey gets taken back by Lancel to go to Cersei uh, I don't think we see Joffrey again, un- like after he he disappears. Um, so he's supposed to go back to Cersei, but Cersei and him never reunite. Uh, at right. least not visibly, uh, not on screen. And uh, I I was slightly unclear as to why Tyrion was disappointed. Was he really disappointed because the men would not have motivation, or was he disappointed that Joffrey would not be killed according to Tyrion's plan? Yeah, I wasn't 100% clear about that. I think, you know, he has this strategy in place and there are the various parts. There's the wildfire and then there's, you know, holding the gate. And I think think he's not trying to get Joffrey killed. I think he was like, crap, now we don't have a leader for the men to rally behind. Oh, God, it has to be me. And I'm so, you know, I'm so ill-suited for this. We saw so many, as you said before, like this was almost – a by the book war scenario right. that we saw. I mean, done so well, but by the book. And like from the very start, we saw that arming scene with Tyrion, where where his um, squire Pod is is putting on his arm, um, his armor, and that's such a traditional epic heroic scene that you see over and over again in Homer and like all sorts of literature and. But he's just like moving about and checking the map and talking to Varys about like, you know, Varys losing uh, his manhood and all that sort of stuff. And it's just not it's not done in the traditional epic way where he's just supposed to stand stock still and spout, you know, heroic things because Tyrion is not our normal hero, obviously. And so once again, he has to do the, the heroic thing and give this rallying speech, which he executes wonderfully, but has to start very uncertainly because it's not his role usually. He's yeah. like, this is, this is not the job that I was born for. You know, this is my brother's job. This is Joffrey's job and I have to do it because someone has to do it. They say I'm half a man. But what does that make the lot of you? The only way out is through the gates. And they're at the gates. There's another way out. I'm going to show you. Come out behind them and fuck them in their asses. <laughs> Don't fight for your king, and don't fight for his kingdoms. Don't fight for honor, don't fight for glory. Don't fight for riches, because he won't get any. This is your city Stannis means to sack. That's your gate he's ramming. If he gets in, it will be your houses he burns. Your gold he steals. Your women he will rape. Those are brave men knocking at our door. Let's go kill them. 
but then he mans up, goes into battle, chops a guy's leg off. You know, so yeah, <laughs> there's a solid. Job. I mean, I wasn't 100 percent convinced that a guy with no training whatsoever, who spent most of his life drinking and sleeping with whores, uh, would be able to actually be good in a fight. But you know, whatever. It's depicted on screen. I was convinced. Go, like, yeah, go, go ahead. for the knees. Go for the knees. Go whatever, for the knees. Yeah, like whatever you can swing at. Um, Play yeah. to your strengths. Play to your strengths. <laughs> Dinklage did this hilarious little like hopping motion when he did it, you know, I think just to show that like, this is not what I'm used to doing. You know what I mean? He was just sort of like off balance. And then he did, yeah, that really awesome gesture with the ax of like, let's go get him. So yeah, yeah, he did did great here. And, uh, and then totally gets like his face ruined by, uh, by an enemy fighter. Now I thought this was going to be a cut slide scenario. Uh, for those of you, those of you not in the industry, cut slide is a very technical business term uh, in movies, where somebody's blade goes through someone's body so quickly that uh, it cuts them, and then their body part slowly slides off. And I thought it's, they were going to like basically cut Tyrion's face in half, and you were going to see it slowly slide off. Because certainly, this episode did not shy away from the gore, as evidenced by the guy's head being completely exploded in front of Stannis. Uh, by a falling rock. That was kind of shocking. Yeah, or Stannis, uh, Stannis chopping someone's head off like it was a pineapple. Yes, that <laughs> was pretty... top of someone's head. And I think the hound, like, vivisected someone entirely. Yeah, it was pretty gory. Yeah, pretty gory. So I thought that's what was going to happen to Tyrion. Uh, but it didn't. And he just started bleeding kind of badly. I think with that type of wound, you'd be bleeding much more than Tyrion was. But... Uh, all in all, I thought uh, it's unclear to me whether Tyrion survives that. Seems like he's not in good shape, but Tyrion's gotten out of uh, bad situations before, so we'll see if he if he survives this battle. Uh, I assume next week. I'll be in fact, I'll be pretty pissed if we don't find out next week if he survives or not. And you saw? Did you see who cut him? Um, I did not see who cut him. So it was Sir Mandon Moore, who's of the King's Guard. So he was cut by one of his own men. And saved by his squire, Podrick, who we've only really seen this episode. We've seen sort of his him like way in the background and other in throughout the season. But like, you know, those of us who know knew that he had this great heroic moment coming up where he was gonna save Tyrion at the end. And uh Well Varys points him out this episode too. Yeah, which, he's like, yeah. Hey, that guy, what's his name? Remember him. He's gonna be important later. Uh, wait, yeah. so why was it why did the Kingsguard turn on him? That's not clear to me. So it's just I, I, you know, I won't speak to the rest of the Kingsguard, but that was Sir Mandon Moore, who, you know, um, he and Tyrion had uh, some words in that episode where Tyrion came to Sansa's defense um, in in the court in the courtroom there, um, not courtroom, in you know, the throne, in the throne room. room. Thank yep. you, in the throne room, and um, and so I, you know, I I don't know that I can really speak to his motivation, but it is significant that it was Sir Mandon Moore who did that. So yeah, uh, pretty amazing stuff by Tyrion on the battlefield, uh, and again, we'll we'll find out next week whether or not he's alive. Uh, I'm yeah. I'm kind of anxious about it. All right, what else happens this episode? I, I think we're rapidly approaching the end. So one of the one of the issues I had, Joanna, is like, where is Melisandre in all this? You know what I mean? Like, uh, why why isn't she coming out of nowhere and freaking cutting? Why isn't Shadow Smoke Baby coming out of nowhere and cutting off Tyrion's head before the battle even begins? Or murdering Joffrey before the battle even begins? Uh, not clear to me why that doesn't happen. Um, well, we had that scene with Davos earlier in the season where he was like, you can't take her. 
into battle, everyone will say she won it and, you know, to Stannis. And he said, it needs to be clear that you won this so they will respect you as a king. You cannot use the magic. You cannot use her. You have to, like, you know, let her go home and not bring her into battle. And I think Stannis was so cocksure because he had, he outnumbered them on every angle. Like, there's no way they should have won this battle. Um, because he had so many men um, following him. And uh, and so that's, you know, he didn't need her, I think he thought. You know what I mean? And that it would look better to not have her. So right. I guess some hubris was involved, you might that, say. That makes sense. That makes sense. Uh, I, you know, that that is a really good explanation for that. So I re- you rest your case. I don't need to comment on that anymore. <laughs> Uh, oh, there, there is also one other interaction I should mention, which is the interaction between Shay and Cersei. Uh, kind of interesting because this season we've seen a couple of instances of uh, people pretending to be in sort of royal positions that they're not supposed to be in. And the Lannisters apparently really good at sussing this out <laughs> yeah. uh, between Tywin and Cersei. They're like, they keep asking these questions. They're like, this just is not quite right. And, Your curtsy uh, is pretty shitty. I yeah. don't think that you belong here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but you know, it's like, why, why is Cersei? You know, why does that even matter at this point? Like, Cersei still has to like harp on it, even though many of them might be about to be raped and killed. She still, oh, I know. To, she still and has to get drunk. the password in. She's yeah. drunk and afraid, but she still manages to belittle people because it's her favorite thing. And she's like, "I mastered this shit when I was four. What's wrong with you? Just hold your back straight. Come on." So. <laughs> Yeah. Um, uh, and then Shay, um, you know, Shay sending Sansa away and then saying she had someone she had to say goodbye to. You know, I think throughout the season, it's been a question on Tyrion's mind and on the rest of our minds as to, as to whether or not Shay actually really cares for him or if she just, you know, enjoys the luxury of being the consort of the Hand of the King. Um or at least that's a question in my mind. I don't know if it was a question in your mind. Uh, yeah, I, I didn't have that question. I thought I thought it was genuine, the love between them. So okay. I actually because he's yeah. so uncertain. You know what I mean? I think he's constantly worried because you remember from last season that backstory of the his first wife and how she was a whore that you know his father hired to trick him or you know something. I mean, terrible trauma in Tyrion's past around a prostitute who said she loved him and then he discovered that she didn't. And so I, you know, this is a huge insecurity for him, which explains some of the intensity in the last episode when he was sort of grabbing at her and he's like, you're mine. You love me. You know that, right? You know, he's got this trauma and she's so important to him. And so it was nice to see that reciprocated, you know, this episode. Yeah, I agree. I agree. The episode concludes with uh, a really moving scene where the, um, Cersei telling her son this fairy tale is intercut with scenes of battle, and she's about to give him poison. Uh, not clear to me if she's going to give them both poison or just him. Uh, I don't know if that was any clearer in the books, but uh, it, it seemed like obviously. Go ahead. The scene is not in the book. I see. So it seemed like she's definitely going to poison him and possibly herself. I don't know if there's enough poison in that vial for the both of them. Right. And uh, and then of course. Uh, who busts in but the last person we expected to see on Earth uh, followed by the second to last person we expected to see (laughs) which is Sir Loras followed by Tywin Lannister now 
uh, you know, I was talking with uh, our colleague Miles McNutt yesterday, and he was saying, he's saying, Dave, without spoiling anything, think of who the person that Tywin busts in the courtroom with, and when the last thing, like, what was the last scenario we saw them, that person in? Uh, and it's Soloris, who is, um, who is the late Renly's lover, or was the late Renly's lover, right? Right. Uh, and the last we saw them, uh, Renly had been murdered by the smoke monster, and they were escaping, uh, because, they feared, Renly and Marjorie, yeah. yeah Renly and Mar- uh, uh, Sir Loras and Marjorie, you mean? Sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, yeah, Sir Loras and Marjorie. Uh, because they feared the wrath of Stannis, and they feared, uh, you know, just all the consequences that would come from Renly's death. So, right. uh, so surprise, surprise! Like they actually united with the Lannisters, and it was kind of uh, not something you expected. But they, it, was, it was very clearly done in a way that. You like it's very obvious that it was Sir Loras. It's like you're supposed to see that moment. You're supposed to be surprised by that moment, followed by being surprised that Tywin is back because the last we heard, um, he was riding off to meet Robb Stark, right? So the fact that Tywin coming back saves the day, not something that we expected either, right? Right. Um. So I don't know what. Like I assume we're gonna get an explanation about this alliance between Loras and Tywin next episode, uh, as well as an explanation of why it is Tywin decided to go back to King's Landing. I mean, I guess he just decided that more important to save King's Landing than to go off and meet Rob. Um, but yeah, go yeah, ahead. we definitely got the groundwork for that because uh, Loras very passionately. You know, there were two reasons. All of Renly's bannermen went to join Stannis, which is why Stannis had so many men behind him. And um, the main reason, two reasons why why Sir Loras, the Tyrells, Sir Loras and Marjorie did not, was on the one hand, you know, fear of retribution from Stannis because they were, you know, Marjorie was the queen, you know. Um, but also Sir Loras, because he loved Renly so much, and no, and feels it's he. He kept saying like, "I feel that Stannis did this. I know that Stannis did this. Stannis killed Renly." So there was that. You know, the Tyrells do not like the Lannisters, but they joined forces because of you know, it's the less of two evils, I guess. So yeah, so the Tyrells joining the Lannisters is a huge tipping point in the in the Game of Thrones. The enemy of my enemy is my friend type of deal. right, right. Yeah. But I did love the way that Loras walked into the to the throne room that was so courtly he whipped off his helm and he shook out his hair and he's just like and then he was kneeling oh it was just it was it was an awesome sequence uh, and i also love the sort of uh slow motion of cersei and the vial and it, it, you know it reminded me a lot of the ending of baz lerman's romeo and juliet for oh, i reason. thought about that too Yes. Yeah, where there is this vial and it has poison in it, and they're about to drink it, basically. Yeah. Um, except, uh, yeah, I mean, you wouldn't put it past George R. R. Martin to have Tom and drink the vial of nightshade and then die, and then, oops. Oh yeah, that would have been <laughs> so. Oh my god. It, yeah. Um, but the one thing that we should talk about that we haven't yet is that um, the wonderful song that they used throughout this episode which was the Reigns of Castamere, um, where you have Bronn singing it at the beginning of the episode. And then they used instrumental versions of it throughout the battle. And um, for those who don't know, it's the story of Tywin Lannister's first victory over a rebellious house. And so it's all about the Lannisters crushing their enemies. And um, 
and just obliterating them so that there's nothing left. And so it's about the glory of Tywin and the glory of the Lannisters. And it's a very famous Lannister song. And and there are these songs in, in George R. R. Martin's books that it's really interesting that they've incorporated into the show because so often with uh, high fantasy, you get these ballads and these songs. And, you know, for fans of Lord of the Rings, we'll remember that they use them a couple times in, in the films to, you know, wonderful effect. And I thought they did it similarly here. And then over the end credits, we get um, the band The National, which is a great band. Their version of the song was playing. And I just thought it was it was beautifully done, the music throughout the episode. Yeah, so. I mean, the, this show doesn't typically use anachronistic music like that, but I did think it was to good effect in this yeah. episode. So, uh, yeah, the, again, it's The Reigns of Castamere by The National. And it was a, it's a very simple arrangement. So even though it's a modern band, you know, it's not it didn't sound super modern, you know, right, didn't right. sound like it was from a Ren Fair or anything like that, but it didn't sound, you know, super anachronistic. So yeah. 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 And I think that's yeah. about, that's about it. That, I think that brings us to the end of this episode, right? Is there anything else we need to discuss from this week's episode of Game of Thrones? Um, anything, Joanna? This week? No, I'm just excited for next week. Well, I will say this. I'm a little bit like, so overall, this is an incredible ep- like hour of television. Totally. You know, there's episodes of TV that, that are so good, they make you happy that you watched everything until this point. Like, not not that everything until this point was not good, but it's like anything that was bad, like let's say, for instance, last week's episode of Game of Thrones, uh, is totally justified by an episode as good as this one. Is because everything it was all building up to this. Uh, you you needed a lot, not all of the pieces that you were setting up, like the Jon Snow and the Daenerys, like that had nothing to do with what was going on here, basically. But you needed a lot of the pieces that you set up earlier to do this. And when an episode pays off like this, it just feels so worth it. And uh, I, I really enjoyed this episode for that reason. All that being said, Joanna, <laughs> all that being said, yes. I do have some trepidation because it is now clear to me that a lot of these plot lines that we love are not going to be resolved in one episode. Uh, it is it is now clear to me that like we are not going to get to see the resolution uh, of at least some of the major plot lines, right? Uh, like Theon, Arya, Jon Snow, Daenerys. I have a feeling they're not going to wrap all of those up in a nice bow next week. And... That's kind of a bummer for me. Just like uh, unless they yeah, do. I heard I heard from some one of our readers wrote in um, that you know, and we knew this already that they're sort of getting less strict about a book being a season and how they're splitting the next book over two seasons. And you know, we've already seen some of the next book spilling into this season. And so that reader brought up the point, or that listener brought up the point that. Um, some of this book might spill into next season. And I think it just all depends on where they think the neatest place to tie a bow on things or the best cliffhanger to, to leave. Um, so yeah, there's still a lot to, to get done. Um, I mean, I just don't think it's, I just that they won't be able to do it all or do it justice. You know what right, I mean? Right. I, just, I, I just don't think it's technically pot. Like it's not technically possible for them to wrap all of those plot lines up in any sort of satisfying way. I understand like you can't resolve everything by the end and it's not uh, by design. It's not supposed to be resolved. The George R. R. Martin series continues from book to book, but it's like, uh, I feel like, there, like I have an internal limit for like how much uncertainty can remain. And I feel like there it might, this might cross the threshold uh, after next week. That's my prediction is that I have this, I just have this nagging sensation that I'm going to leave next week's episode very unsatisfied. 
Um, well, at the end of last week's podcast, I think you said something along the lines of, you know, I kept promising you something good was coming and you're like, well, it better. So this episode delivered with that. Um, so hopefully um, your worst fears will will not be realized next week. Hopefully you will change your mind. Okay. Well, I mean, l- let me just ask you a very basic question. I'm not going to ask you to divulge any plot details, obviously, but based on what you know, do you think it is possible for them to resolve Danny's plotline and Theon's plotline and Arya's plotline and Jon Snow's plotline and Rob Stark's plotline in next week's episode? I think they are going my just prediction wise, I think they're going to tie up Jon and Danny and Arya. It's going to it's already different from the book, so I can't really tell what they're going to do, but they're going to tie those up. I'm guessing they're going to leave Theon for next season. That's gotcha. my guess. Gotcha. All right. Well, there's so your we'll prediction. You're, you're, you've placed your bets, and we'll see. We'll see <laughs> we'll where see. it ends up. We'll see yeah. where it ends up. Okay. Uh, well, we we got emails. Most of them were about penises, but uh, we did get one email this week at a cast of kings at gmail dot com uh, about the show in general. And uh, here's an email from Thomas, who's never read the books. Thomas writes in, uh, just listened to your podcast. Love the show. Thanks for giving me a place to listen to discussion about what was one of my favorite shows the last couple of years. Unfortunately, I don't think I can handle Game of Thrones after the season ends. Uh, feels like the show just keeps giving me an hour of a bunch of short scenes that 90% don't or haven't yet led anywhere. I won't go too much into detail, but I just wonder if you guys agree with me saying that the show just feels like a huge amount of talking and almost zero action. All the moments, uh, like Theon taking Winterfell, Rob's army attacking the dudes, making fart jokes, the escape from Harrenhal, that we as an audience have earned through sitting through hours and hours of talking, all of them happen off screen. The only shining light was when the people threw cow dung at Joffrey and a riot ensued. I had hoped they would continue with more action in the latest episode, but no luck. Having said all that, they have no problem showing unnecessary nudity and sex scenes, usually to no advancement of the story. I know lots has been said about this already, so I'll leave it pretty much alone. I guess I'm frustrated because it feels like watching the Godfather films without all the good bits, just mobsters sitting around talking about doing stuff, then sitting around talking about the fact that they did it or are about to do it. Thrilling. I'll leave you alone for now. Thanks for the show. I'll keep listening, even if I'm not watching Game of Thrones. It's consistently better than Game of Thrones, although perhaps I'll eat my words over the next couple of weeks. Uh, so Thomas obviously didn't watch this week's episode before he wrote this email, or else I think he would have eaten his words and never written the email in the first place. Uh, but any thoughts on this email in general, Joanna? Well, I think it's this question that we've been grappling with this whole season of is it worth it to wait through the episodes that are, are a bit slower when you get something as magnificent as this episode Blackwater? And I think it definitely is. And for those of us who have read the book, it's it's easier for us to be patient. But the question is, for those of you who haven't read the books, you know, and you don't know that this huge payoff is coming, you know, is it worth it? Are you enjoying it? I mean, I enjoy scenes of people sitting around talking personally. Those yeah, are and, you know, yeah, some me, of the best scenes. So, and, and let me like kind of address that point that I, I find truly baffling uh, in this email and also previous emails about like there not being enough action on Game of Thrones. I mean, we, we saw this episode. There was a lot of action. Okay. And it was a really good episode. Do you want to see this every single week? I mean, wouldn't it get pretty boring after a while? It, it just—we've seen war movies, we've seen action movies. What we haven't seen are, or or what I don't think gets as old is really well acted scenes of like crackling dialogue playing out in a political intrigue scenario. Like that's what we watch Game of Thrones for. I, I don't understand people that watch Game of Thrones for the action. That just makes no sense to me. Like this is not an action oriented 
series. There is occasionally action, but really you watch the show because you want to see these uh, familial and political dynamics play out between these characters in interesting ways. And a lot of the first season was people talking about stuff they'd done in the past. I think this ep- this season actually does a better job of showing rather than telling. Uh, but still, there's a lot of that going on. And I, I think if you're expecting something different, you're not going to be happy uh, from watching Game of Thrones. So I, well, I just don't think it's a good idea to watch it for action. But what they um, did do for, you know, for whatever reason is they crammed all of the best bits into the past, into like the last two, two and a half episodes. And, you know, in the book, it's spread out a bit more. Like Arya's escape from Harrenhal comes halfway through the book. You know, so George R. R. Martin himself sort of paces these big set pieces throughout the book. So I, I, you know, and Theon's story wraps up much earlier. So I'm just, I'm a little confused as to why they've done this um, when it's, it involves so much more work to push everything to the end. You know what I mean? When they could have had these various episodes pop up throughout that would have been very action heavy and compelling. Well, I mean, I just know? think I just think they're, that they're limited by budget. I mean, what action has there really been this season other than this episode? I mean, you get you get scenes of fighting maybe, but like other than you get scenes of people killing people, but in terms right. of action, there's not that much, you know, technically action going on. So that we I, haven't seen, I agree, but like, you know, like I said last week, I'm disappointed by Arya's escape from Har- Heron Hall. I think it's a much cooler scene in the book. And it, you're entirely right. It could be budgetary, simply. I'm and sure. Like, we're going to do Blackwater and something else. And we're going to have – everything else is going to have to suffer slightly in scale, in scope. You know? And um, so, yeah, I can see that. But it's just sort of a little frustrating because it's plotted – I think it's plotted a bit better – in the books, just in terms of the rise and fall of action, you know? That being said, I do sympathize with uh, uh, this email's uh, point, uh, which is to say, I, I sympathize with Thomas's point about, in general, the, the direction this series has taken. Uh, and and for, for different reasons. I feel like the sort of subplots and side characters that the show introduces are so compelling and so good. Uh, that it disappoints me that we only get a snippet of them. Like, we only get, like, what, two, three episodes of Marjorie in it, and she's in those episodes for, like, five minutes. Right. You know, and we're supposed to care about this character, but then we never see her again for, like, the rest of the season. We, we might see her next week. But it's like, are we really supposed to have that much trust in this show that this stuff is all going to pay off five years from now? I don't even know if George R. R. Martin's books are going to pay off because those aren't even done yet. So, right, like, true, so, so, true. so given, given that we don't know if it's all going to wrap up in a satisfying way, uh, I personally feel like there's a little bit more onus on the show to, to be more careful with the plot lines it introduces. Uh, even, to, you know, even if it means diverging a little bit more from the books. And we've certainly seen that the show is not shy about doing that. True. So. I mean, that's kind of my attitude is like, we have all these plot lines. The show is, it's just, it's too many plot lines in my opinion. Um, and uh, I know that sounds like, you know, Amadeus and the the guy saying too many notes or whatever, but it's like, <laughs> you know, this is television and it's my opinion. And so that's, uh, maybe in five years from now, I'm going to be proven wrong. But I feel like in in the history of TV, when a show has kind of bitten off more than it can chew in a way that I feel like this show is doing, it hasn't usually ended well. And uh, I- I'm kind of worried about that. Well, let me ask you a question from like a TV um, viewer perspective. 
if they had done Danny's story in three episodes or four episodes, which I think they could have quite easily, um, either at the beginning or the end, would you as a viewer have been satisfied with six episodes of no Danny whatsoever, but a more efficient, you know, telling of her story rather than having these scenes here and there where she's spinning her wheels, you know what I mean? Which is what they did. So they did that so that we would have Danny in almost every episode this season because she's a fan favorite and we want to see her, but they, you know, they drew her plot out they stretch it so thin that it lost a lot of its potency, you know? And so the question is next season or in the upcoming seasons, should they be smarter or, or should, would it be wise to condense those stories at the risk of not having that character in, you know, in every episode? I think totally. And I think this episode is a good test case for that. You yeah. know, th- this episode shows you the potential of Game of Thrones when all you're worrying about is crafting a single extremely compelling hour of television. And when you're not worrying when you're not worrying about, oh, we have to stuff every single character into this episode. Right. Because um, like I don't need to see Danny. I love Danny, but I don't need to see her every single episode. I won't forget that she's over there. You know what I mean? And I won't sit here and go, what is Danny up to? You know, because they will show me eventually. Right. So I agree with you. I think I think maybe you know, going forward, it, it would be it would keep the potency of those storylines much yeah. sharper if they did it that way. Yeah, I think I think they should totally do it that way. And uh, and again, this episode demonstrates it's possible to do it really, really well. So I think HBO should obviously hire us to run the show for the rest of the seasons. I don't know about run the show, Joanna. Maybe story editor. I'd be happy <laughs> <Okay>. with. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, I, I I have one other. I have a personal note. Joanna, I, w- I want to get into. May I get into a personal note while we while we wrap up this episode? Absolutely. So there's been a lot of, uh, or not a lot. There's been some discussion on on the slashfilm.com boards where you can find every episode of the show at gameofthronespodcast.com uh, about why I seem to be taking sort of uh, the incredibly hurtful things said about me so badly uh, in terms of the the reaction to this show, and uh, I, I've been reflecting on it like for some reason. Uh, what the the most common complaint that a lot of people throw around is that oh Dave Chen, uh, I don't understand why you record this podcast if you don't like this show, uh, and for some reason that just infuriates me to no end because uh, guys like people there there are literally thousands of people listening to this episode right now. Uh, listening to us talking about the show right now. And we do this, like, what is the reason we do this? It's because we love the show and we like talking about the show. Uh, There's no other reason. We don't get any money from this. It takes up a lot of time to do it. Uh, Why else would we do this unless we loved it? It just, that that is what is kind of um, insulting and I find hurtful is that people accusing me of, of like, oh, your fandom doesn't even exist you're just creating this show because you hate it, uh, creating this podcast because you hate it, and uh, it's it's very upsetting because it's like almost questioning my uh, the sort of premise of me even being able to talk about the show. Not that one really exists, but I'm just saying like, why else would I do this unless I love the show? It it doesn't make any sense to me, um, and so I guess that's why I take it so personally is because like people aren't saying, hey David, I disagree with your criticisms. Here's why, which I think would be totally fine. It's because they're saying, David, you shouldn't even have the ability to talk about this show. Is kind of what I what I hear it as. Um, and you know, I've I've been doing podcasting for four years now, 
And uh, it's interesting. Like I've gone through the whole thing where like people like the show, and then there's people that criticize the show. And I, I've dealt with that in my other podcasts. But for this Game of Thrones show, it's been like accelerated. That whole sort of life cycle <laughs> has been accelerated to the nth degree. It's like uh, we we got to the backlash five weeks in as opposed to like six months in. Do you know what I'm saying? Right. Um, so that's also why it's been a little bit difficult for me to witness is just because, uh, you know, I have dealt with this kind of criticism before, but just not, I, I just, it usually takes a lot longer to surface. Uh, and so anyway, just sharing some, some personal reactions to actually recording this podcast. And it's something that I'm thinking about as we, you know, uh, or as I, I, I guess, Joanna, I'm pretty sure you enjoy doing this. <laughs> uh, but as I like consider whether or not to to continue doing this uh, this show next season, uh, it's just stuff that that is on my mind. So wanted to share that. Don't know if you have any thoughts, Joanna. But uh, yeah. I, I just think that people are so passionate about this show, and there's something about let's. I think it's safe to say, given that it's based on a sci-fi fantasy book or fantasy book, that. You know, we could call the fandom here of the geekish persuasion. I mean, it obviously has a much broader appeal. But what I've been seeing more and more in in the world of criticism is the people in those spheres and the geek sphere uh, are really vocally defensive of the things they love. Uh, we saw that with some negative Avengers reviews where the reviewers were attacked personally. And it's very odd because you can disagree with the criticism, but to attack someone personally, you know, it's just, it's very strange. And it was, it was so violently, you know, negative. And I've, I've really seen it mostly attached to things like comic books and fantasy and that sort of stuff, that realm. And I think that's so odd to me um, because I, I would consider myself a geek and I don't think of the community that way, but I've just been seeing it a lot recently. Well, there's, there is a demand for uniformity in general online. You know, um, It's not clear to me why it exists, but yeah, I, actually it is, it is somewhat clear to me. It, it's fun to be on the winning side. Right. And it's fun to be on the side of, you know, it's fun to be like, you know, hey, there's a big group of us. We all think this is excellent. If you in any way say anything that can be construed to be uh, thinking that it's not excellent, you, you should be attacked for it. Yeah. And um, I think, I mean, just what I'll say is that, you know, A, it's obvious that Dave and I, well, maybe it's not obvious to you guys, <laughs> but it's obvious to us that we love this show. Uh, it's obvious to me that I love the books. And, um, the fact that we have criticisms does not like lessen our love for the show. And if you wanted to listen to a podcast where people just gush about how great the show is, that's that's totally its own thing, and that's yeah, fine. Th and I'm sure it exists out those there. Those exist. Yeah. Those exist. Those you know? exist. Yeah. And, and you know, but it's just Dave and I like to sort of because we love it so much, we like to think about the ways in which it might be a little better in our opinion. You yep, know, and that's exactly. what we're talking about. We're not talking about how we dislike the show. But, you know, and I will say that as vocal as the negativity has been in certain spheres, it has been overwhelmingly overshadowed by a lot of positive outpouring from people, too. So people are just really passionate in general on both sides. And um, I appreciate all the feedback we've been getting, all the interaction we've had with with the listeners. I really, you know, even when sometimes it stings a little, you know. It's yeah, well, I think a lot of the emails have been really informed and really great. So thank you guys. And if you have any thoughts on what we just said, feel free to shoot that to us at acastofkings at gmail.com. Only one episode of Game of Thrones <laughs> Season 2 remains. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, so tune in next week 
for our review of the season finale of Game of Thrones. Thanks for listening.